You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Eric Larson. This program originally aired in 2012. Thank you. Thank you. I'm totally thrilled um, to be here and to actually have a really large crowd and music. I mean, this is really great um, because it, it makes me actually very nostalgic for my very first book event. My very first book was The Naked Consumer. <laughs> Wait a minute, did somebody actually read it? Sorry. That is a book that nobody, nobody bought, nobody read. Well, actually, I'm sorry, one guy read it and reviewed it and hated it. And, and, and the reason he hated it was because he was a target of the book. It was about how, it was about how companies spy on, on individual consumers. But I was living in Baltimore at the time, and I did actually get uh, a call after the book had been out for a while, and I was despondent. I got a call um, to go and do a signing at a bookstore in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I've since learned, by the way, that Sunday afternoon book signings are death. <laughs> that Sunday afternoon book signings on the first warm Sunday, and after a hard winter, are really especially so. But anyway, I thought, now my career is going to take off. So I go up there, and it's one of these signings where you're stuck at the table at the back of the bookstore with about 30 or 40 of your books, right, on this table. The idea being that people will flock to you in droves, and you will sign their books, and since the books are then defaced, that they will have to buy them. And Everybody will be happy. Mercifully, somebody at this bookstore had made a plate of chocolate chip cookies. And I put them on the table because God knew nobody's going to buy this book without an inducement. But here's the thing. I sat there in this store for about an hour and a half with nobody even making eye contact. People were looking at the books around me on the shelves, you know, and they, were, they would pull their children away. It's just, but at about the hour and a half point, I looked up, and this woman was coming towards me with a big smile on her face. So I start pulling out my pen. Now I'm on my way. And she comes up to the table, and she says, how much are the cookies? <laughs> so tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about In the Garden of Beasts, this new, new book of mine, and try, try to give you a sense of how I think about ideas and also what, what really most surprised me. First, though, uh, I want to do, uh, because I want to give you a flavor for the book, I want to I do a, a brief reading, about 28 pages or so. <laughs> I need to know how many hearts sank when I said I was going to do a reading. <laughs> I would rather have a vasectomy without anesthetic than, than hear another writer read his or her own work. And actually, if I had PowerPoint, I would, I would give you a visual, but I, they, they didn't provide a, a screen. So, In the Garden of Beasts. The idea process for me is actually a very difficult time. It usually takes me really about a year from the time I finish one book before I can get another idea off, off the ground. It's sufficiently hard. My kids know it. My wife knows it. We all, they all hate it. I hate it. Uh, my, my great friend and publicist, Penny Simon, has come up with a term for this she refers to it as that time when I'm in the dark country of no ideas. The dark country of no ideas. And the reason it takes, it, it, it's hard to find these ideas is that, is that what I really look for are ideas, you know, actual historical events, uh, whatever, that can be broken down into their DNA, if you will, and reassembled in such a way that we as readers can live the event as it unfolded 
you know, to, to an extent the way people at the time actually lived the event, you know, without knowing, without knowing the ending. My favorite model for this kind of book, a book that magically is back on the New York Times bestseller list, is uh, A Night to Remember by Walter Lord, which, as many of you know, is a book about the Titanic. I have read that book probably four times. Each time I read it, I think to myself, I hope that this time the Titanic will not sink. <laughs> which is, in fact, the magic, of, the magic of reading. I mean, I have the same feeling. Another, another favorite nonfiction book is The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Um, every time I read that, and I've read that a number of times as well, I find myself saying, you know, these people cannot be so stupid as to let World War I happen. And of course, World War I happens. But one day, about five years ago, I was in that dark country of no ideas. And the thing I hate most about that is that I feel very unproductive. And so I just decided, you know, I gotta, I gotta jumpstart my thinking. So I went out to a, a, a bookstore um, near my home just to browse the history section, to see what was new coming out, what covers moved me, what covers turned me off, what, what was just sort of interesting. Came across a book face out on the shelf that I'd always meant to read, but it was always kind of intimidating. You know, 1,200 pages, tiny type, no photographs. It's not the Bible, no. Um, it was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire. Took the book home, read it, loved the book. Loved it, loved it because it really kind of read like, like, a, like a thriller, and actually it still holds up very well. But as I was reading it, I had this, this sort of miniature epiphany. And that was, you know, here was William Shire, the author. He had come to Berlin in March of 1934, not March of 1930, but in 1934, and had, of course, stayed there as a correspondent for the rest of that time, and then later became a correspondent, a war correspondent during World War II. But what occurred to me is that when he was there in those early days of Berlin, um, he would socialize with these people we know today to be the absolute icons of evil. People like Goering and Goebbels and Himmler and Heydrich and so forth. He would interview uh, Hitler, he would have lunch with Goebbels and, and Goering and so forth. But my little epiphany had to do with the fact that when he did that, at the time he was actually doing that, nobody knew the ending. Nobody knew where this story was going to go. And I started wondering, what would that have been like to have been in Berlin in these early days of Hitler's rule? What would that have been like to have socialized with these people? Would I have had any sense of what was coming down the pike? If I was sitting in one of Berlin's fantastic cafes and I saw Hitler being driven by in his open car, would I feel a thrill? Would I feel terror? Or would it have just been the most routine of moments? So I started thinking about doing a book to really satisfy my own curiosity about that period, try to capture a sense of that growing darkness of, of the age. I knew that to do so, I would need some real-life characters, a couple of real-life characters, um, ideally outsiders, ideally American outsiders, because I write primarily for an American audience. So I hit the library. And I have to say that and if there are any librarians out there, I am a huge, huge fan of libraries. Um, in fact, I, I love libraries so much. If you gave me a choice between a night alone with Kate Blanchett <laughs> or a night locked alone in the Library of Congress, 
I would take the night with Kate Blanchett in a heartbeat. <laughs> but I, I, I do, um, I do, I, I love libraries. <laughs> so the first thing I did, and, and what you know, most writers of nonfiction would do, is you know I, I started reading the grand histories. Um, for example, Alan Bullock's classic, Hitler: A Study in Tyranny. Um, the great works of modern scholarship by, for example, Sir Ian Kershaw and, and Richard Evans. Then circling in kind of like a moth to a flame to the more intimate histories, like published diaries, published letters, and, and, and things like that. I, I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but at some point I came across a man named William E. Dodd, his diary. And soon afterwards I came across a memoir by his daughter, Martha. And it was at that point that I knew on an instinctive level, that these were going to be my characters for this story. Okay, so imagine for a moment. You are William E. Dodd. You are 63 years old. You are a mild-mannered professor of history at the University of Chicago, chairman of your department. And you are tired of academia. All you want to do is finish your own book, a multi-volume series about the Old South, which you have titled, weirdly, and appropriately, the rise and fall of the Old South. <laughs> Suddenly, one hot day at noon, precisely, your telephone rings in your office. You pick up the phone, and the guy at the other end is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, newly elected president of the United States. So Roosevelt asks you to be the next ambassador to Germany. This is a post that at this point has been vacant for about five months. And here's the thing, he gives you two hours to decide. What you don't know, and what he neglects to tell you, is that one reason he's calling you is because nobody else wanted the job. He has offered it to many others by now. Three weeks later, you are on the ship to Germany. You have brought your family with you, a grown son, your wife, and your 24-year-old daughter, Martha. <laughs> and she is one heck of a daughter. I mean, you know. <laughs> Talk, talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, you know. I, uh, sh should we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey? Should we? Hmm. So, but you know, I, I am the father. I'm the father of three daughters, and I can tell you that, that on the one hand, I am so glad that Martha was not one of my, my daughters. But I can tell you also, as a writer, I am so glad I found her. I mean, she's just terrific, you know. Frankly, I, <laughs> I would have actually liked, I'd like to have had dinner with her in, in, in Berlin. I might have gotten lucky. Like. <laughs> the rest of the Third Reich did. I mean, you know, it's... Um... <laughs> but she is the one, she's the one who hooked me. I mean, here she is. You know, she's smart, she's sexy, and she has this thing, this, this, this sexual charisma. Um, she has this capacity to, to inflame the passions of men, both young and, and, and not so young. By the age of 24, she has had an affair with Carl Sandburg, the Carl Sandburg, at that point about 55 years old. She's also broken two engagements to be married. She is in the midst of a dead marriage to a New York banker. I didn't know there was any other kind of marriage to a <laughs> New York banker. I, I did promise myself to, to leave politics out of this completely, by the way. So um, anyway, so Martha comes along to Berlin, and this is the thing that really I, I really, it was so hard for me to get my, my mind around, but that, that made me really think she'd be an ideal character. 
She goes along to Berlin for the adventure, arrives, and she falls in love with the Nazi revolution, as she calls it. And here's the thing, she was not alone. An awful lot of people in this time thought Hitler might be good for Germany. You could quarrel with his methods, you know, I'd say, but maybe he was just the guy to, to bring Germany out of its post-World War I malaise. In fact, on the last night in America, the Dodds gathered earlier that day in New York so they, they, they could catch their ship the next day. But that night, they, they gathered at the, uh, they went to a fabulous dinner party at the home of Charles R. Crane. A, on, on Park Avenue, a very wealthy philanthropist. His family made their money off plumbing supplies. Throughout the, throughout the dinner conversation, um, Charles Crane is um, taking a very much a pro-Hitler stance. Very pro-Hitler. At the end of the dinner, he takes Dodd aside and he tells him, he gives him a little parting advice. He tells him, let Hitler have his way. He also advises him a little later that when he gets to Berlin, he should not have any interaction with Jews because this will only hamper his ability to deal with, with the Third Reich. Her father arrives, hell-bent on being objective, not to prejudge the Reich, exhibiting a kind of willful ignorance that, in fact, the, the world at large seemed to be exhibiting at the same time. He expects to find rational statesmen it's his historical training. He knows from his, his, his studies that statesmen are at least on some level smart and rational. They do crazy things, but they're, they're fundamentally smart, rational men. He comes to Berlin and gradually realizes that um, there's no rationality here. It's pathology, organic pathology. These people are, in fact, crazy. His consul general, George Messer Smith, not to be confused with Willi Messer Schmidt, um, wrote in a lengthy, that's all he could do, write lengthy dispatches. His nickname was 40 Pages George. Um, he wrote in a, a lengthy confidential dispatch that in any other time or culture, these top three guys, um, Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels, would be receiving treatment in an asylum. And that was uh, actually even before the Dodd's arrival in July of 1933. I'll tell you what I found most frightening. That was how quickly Germany changed. This, this happened very quickly and in, in very sort of quiet behind the scenes way often and sometimes not so quiet behind the scenes. But, you know, things happened so quickly that you could go away on a business trip. And of course, business trips were a bit longer in those days, I mean, especially if you went overseas. But let's say you went on a business trip, you were gone for a couple of weeks. You might return to your hometown and find everything changed. And it's not because you're Jewish necessarily, but in one way or another, it's been decided that you are out of line with the Nazi ethos. So you could come back to your, your hometown and find lifelong friends who suddenly would not talk to you, shopkeepers who would not deal with you. You would also find people, neighbors, you know, people once friendly with each other, ratting each other out to the Gestapo, a new agency as of April of 1933, ratting each other out to the Gestapo um, to essentially resolve petty jealousies of their own. Let's say you envied your neighbor's house. You might call up the Gestapo or send them an anonymous note or something and say, hey, my neighbor said something nasty about Hitler. And the Gestapo was such, even then, such a suffocating entity that it would investigate. Things got so bad in 1933 that even Hitler complained. 
He told his justice minister, and I quote, we are living in a sea of denunciations and human meanness. This is Adolf Hitler, 1933. <laughs> Happily, and, and perhaps strangely, um, but much to my, my relief, let me tell you, um, this book has found a, a, a large and enthusiastic audience. Um, and I think partly it's because a lot of people at, uh, all along the political spectrum see a resonance in some event today. At the left, there are those who are afraid of the Tea Party. I give a lot of talks at synagogues, and, and, and the congregations are, are universally terrified of the president of Iran, and I, 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 don't, I don't blame them. I'm a little perplexed about it at the, at the, extreme, at the extreme right. There are those who, believe it or not, um, see Obama as the reincarnation of Hitler. Now, I heard that laugh, but you know, if you, if you doubt me, um, go home tonight, fire up Google, type in Obama and Hitler in the same window and see what you come up with. I think you're going to be in for a chilling evening. And, and you know, what's the thing that makes people think that, that Obama is Hitler? Healthcare. Now, I'm a fledgling scholar, fledgling Hitler scholar, but I can, I can tell you one thing. The last thing on Hitler's mind was healthcare. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out on such a rainy evening. Eric Larson, what a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. You told us a little bit of what was going on in the underbelly in Germany when the Dodds arrived in 1933 in July. Give us a picture of the Berlin they saw, however. It was still a grand, wonderful city. Yeah, it really was. And that was one of the important things that I, I felt um, when, I, when I got into this book was that I was going to try, to the extent that I, I could, was to try and leave hindsight as much out of the picture as I, as I could. Um, so when you look at it, the, the world that they were in, in that time through that, through that lens, you see something that may, may surprise you. I mean, Berlin at this time was a vibrant, charismatic city. When Martha walked out her door each day, she didn't see people getting knocked to the ground. She didn't see any violence. She saw a gorgeous park, for one thing, right outside the front, the Tier Garden. Um, and she had a wonderful life. I mean, she went dancing seemingly every night, um, you know, places like Chiro's and, and the rooftop bar at the Eden Hotel, and there were these lovely cafes and movies. Movies were, were a very big deal. Movie theaters uh, sat 1,500, 2,000 people. King Kong was the hot movie of the age and was said actually to be Hitler's favorite, favorite movie. Favorite movie. Yeah. So the Dodd family, they were a diplomatic family uh, traveling in these circles and having dinner with Goering and Goebbels. And meanwhile, outside of their doors, there was a lot of trouble for Americans on the streets. Or not a lot, but an not, incidence, not increasing incidents for Americans on the street, which put Ambassador Dodd in a very tough position. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. One, one, it was also one of, I mean, many things surprised me about this era. This comes home to me each time I, I do a book, because I tend to have sort of a, take a, a narrow window and look very deeply through, through, through that window. And, and when you do that, um, you discover things. For example, these people who were Americans who would be visiting Berlin 
happened about once a month. An American, the, the, the typical thing that happened was an American would be walking along one of the great shopping streets and a, uh, a phalanx of uh, stormtroopers would come by doing their frequent parading. Now the rule was that when the, when the stormtroopers came by, you did the, the whole Nazi salute thing. And if you didn't, it was a very bad thing. But now Americans, you know, they're like, I'm not going to do this, you know. I mean, if I'm not Catholic, I'm not going to cross myself. You know, that's their attitude. Mm -hmm. However, um, uh, at least once a month, some American would decide I'm not going to do the salute. And the stormtroopers would, you know, beat them up, beat them to the ground. Um, in, in a couple of cases, really quite seriously hurt them. But this happened on a, on a sort of a sporadic basis. It was something that, interestingly, one of the victims um, came back to America and told the press, he said, look, you know, it's my fault. I, I was not willing to, to obey the rules of their culture. Now, there was some suspicion that he'd been gotten to by the Germans beforehand, possibly paid off or otherwise bribed to, to say that. But, you know, it was sort of like, uh, you know, thunderstorms in summer. It happened and it passed. But America and the FDR administration, and especially the State Department, kept up with this isolationist mood. They weren't yeah. going to intervene. I'd love to hear about some of the forces behind that isolationism. Oh boy, there were so many forces acting on, acting on, on Roosevelt. His priority, and, and again, one has to really try to insert yourself into the time and, and view the world through, through that point of view. His priority, his top priority, was getting America out of the Depression. And he had, um, in 1933, the first package of legislation that would ultimately lead to and be a, be a component of what we know today as, as the New Deal. But he faced a lot of political opposition um, on, on, on a variety of grounds, including his, his New Deal. And it was really incendiary opposition. If, if, if he, at some point in 1930, he felt, and I think he was, I think he was correct, if at some point he had stepped out and done something, really tried to raise the flag for America in, in resistance to, to Germany, he might well have conjured the, the forces of this isolationist movement that was building in the country and might have sabotaged his, his whole New Deal and so forth. That was his, his fear. Mm -hmm. Whether, you know, hindsight, you know, whether that's justified or not, we'll, we'll, we'll never know because it, it is what happened. But there was also a pervasive and not so well hidden anti-Semitism, both in the State Department yes. and in the American public. Another surprise to me, another surprise to me, perhaps not a surprise to some members of the audience, but um, in 1933-34, which, which is the, the, the focal point of, of my, my book, I, I was really started to find the depth and intensity of anti-Semitism in America. In fact, there was an early opinion poll done that found that some 30-something percent of Americans felt the Jews had too much power. And incidentally, there's, a, there's an annual study of, of, of anti-Semitism, and that, that percentage of people who feel in America that Jews have too much power is now at 13% as opposed to 30. So it's an improvement, but still, there's work to be done. But 30% or so felt that uh, Jews had too much power. 20-some percent felt that Jews should be sent out of the country back to where, where they came from. So that was the, that was the sort of the ambient anti-Semitism of the age. But well, what I found appalling was was the fact that the top three operating guys in the State Department, I'm not talking about Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, I don't believe he was an anti-Semite, but the top three guys below him were really very clearly and, and, and really openly anti-Semitic. One guy wrote in his diary, a diary that he clearly meant to be a historical document for the future, given the way it, it, it's typed and, and, and so nicely put together. He would routinely refer to Jews as kikes, mm. routinely refer to Jews as kikes. What also really found, I found very striking, though, was that Dodd was not above this either. Mm -hmm. He had this sort of ambient anti-Semitism, 
And it expressed itself in some very interesting ways. At one point, he, he, he writes a, um, a confidential uh, memorandum to the State Department in which he says, he complains that he has too many Jews on his staff, hurting him, especially in dealing with the, with the Third Reich. But I think the most interesting moment occurred in March of 1934 when Dodd had his second formal meeting with Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. And, you know, remember Dodd is this mild-mannered professor, you know, and he's, he's kind of treating Hitler as a grad student at this point, you know, and, he, and oddly enough, he's trying to come, he's trying to find common ground with Hitler on what he refers to, and everybody at that time, um, Nazi and otherwise, referred to as the Jewish problem. And he tells Hitler, he says, you know, you know, we in America, we have our own Jewish problem, and, uh, but we're trying to resolve it in a much more you know, humane way. And what he's got in mind is quotas and, and you know, redistribution of jobs and, and, and things like that. When the subject of Jews came up, Hitler would always lose it completely, and he did so at this time. And um, he starts to rant, and he, he accuses the Jews of, of being the source of all the rising criticism of the Reich. And a very important moment that I think has been largely overlooked by historians, he screams at Dodd, he says, if the Jews keep this up, I will put an end to all of them. That's March of 1934, and the Holocaust is really a long way off at this point. Mm. Uh, several members of the audience also wanted to know about the economic interests. There were creditors that were owed uh, $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion in 1933 Yeah, this is essentially... And they wanted their money back. They, that was the State Department's top priority. They didn't care. They, wanted, they, they didn't care what else Dodd was doing. They wanted that, that money back, uh, and they wanted it um, fast, and it wasn't happening. One interesting thing that Dodd really kind of decided on his own was that, okay, this was a priority of the State Department, but he knew well enough once he was there that it wasn't going to happen that there were many other more important things to deal with. But it was the money. That was the money that the State Department was really, really hot to get. Question also from the audience. Why does Garden of Beasts not mention Hitler's book Mein Kampf? Wasn't it well known in Germany at the time? Was it known in the US? Yeah, I think my book does mention Mein Kampf. And Mein Kampf is actually a very interesting book um, from Dodd's perspective, because he read it in the original German. And um, from Dodd's perspective, the original German version is really much scarier than the boulderized version that was released in America in, I can't remember the, the specific year. But, you know, Mein Kampf was just not that important to, to frankly, to my particular story. I'm, I'm after a particular, particular narrative of these two naive people in Berlin, and, and uh, I took that where I, I needed to go. You mentioned Martha earlier. My father, who read the book, he said, hmm, that daughter was something. And you gave us a little bit of an indication of that. Very flirtatious. And if you believe the view of the embassy staff at the time, quite indiscreet. Do you think that her affairs, or uh, let's say her dalliances, we don't know the nature of them exactly, with Rudolf Diels, who was the chief of the Gestapo at the, the time? first chief of the Gestapo. First chief of the who Gestapo. Knew, who knew that there was a first chief who was actually a, considered a good guy? And also the uh, press attaché, was it, for the, the Nazi government? Yeah, foreign press attaché. Yeah. Um, his last name is Hoffenstengel or something. Putzi Amstengel. Do you think that hurt Dodd's chances at sort of a diplomatic solution to what was going on in Germany? Oh, I don't think anybody could have, could have done much of anything with regard to, the, to Hitler and company. Did, did, his, did his daughter affect things, you know? Um, certainly there was an undercurrent of criticism of him among senior officials of the Third Reich. But I don't really, I didn't really get any sense that, that her dalliances were really causing anybody any, any particular grief, except maybe George Messersmith Dodd's number two, who, who really thought she was not doing Dodd much good by, by going out and 
you know, sleeping with half the city. Well, there are so many things that have... I shouldn't make love. I mean, if she was here, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Several events started changing the mind of the Dodds, even Martha, who was, as you said, quite rosy about the, the new Germany. One of them, a definitive one, the purge, or the, the night of the long knives, right. June 30th, yeah. 1934. Right. Tell us what happened on that night. Well, the night of the long knives, first of all... Um, as, again, from the narrative perspective, as a writer, and, and, and you know, I, I should really say that you know, I come to I come to the stories, that, the, the the books that I do, not so much out of a desire to inform per se. I mean, I, I do want to inform, but but I'm really interested in in mining the story of maybe this is going to sound trite, but really to put the story back in in, in history. So I come at it from from the story aspect. Um, and having gone on that tangent, I have completely forgotten the question. So did I. Oh, the, first, the Night of the Long Knives. <laughs> um, so the, so, so, but the Night of the Long Knives, what I was trying to get at is that from a narrative perspective, it was the perfect, it served as the perfect climax. You know, because A, because it changed Dodd. It really was the thing that changed Dodd, that made him really see for once and for all that, that there was probably not much that he could do. And that really made him, it, it horrified him so much. He said at one point, he said he cannot even look at Hitler. He, he, he sees him as, this, as a horror. And it also changed Martha. Now, Martha went off in a somewhat different direction, as, as she, too, was, was prone to do. But it, it was a very powerful thing. What happened that night, um, throughout that first year, it was a crucible year for Hitler. Throughout that first year, you, you, you might think, again, from our position of, of hindsight, that everything was hunky-dory in the Third Reich, that everybody was marching in step, but they weren't. Hitler, there was one camp, on Hitler's camp, then there was another camp, his, his old friend and ally, Ernst Rahm, who was the head of the stormtroopers. He wanted a lot more power. He wanted a lot more official capacity. He wanted to run the military rearmament of, of Germany. And, and Hitler did not want him to have that power. And it became a real schism, which ultimately led on that night of the Long Knives to a massacre by Hitler's forces in the SS of possibly as many as 700 members of the Third Reich. Um, stormtroopers primarily, but, but many others as well. Lots of people got caught up in this, in this purge of Hitler's, just outright murders and assassinations that took place essentially over 48 to 72 hours on that weekend. What I found most astonishing is that back at the State Department, where these senior guys were, you know, of course, monitoring events, it seemed to have no impact on their thinking. It did not seem to even necessarily horrify them. They still, within... But then, I, I think it was like the Monday after that weekend, they're back on Dodd's case to get that debt paid. Mm -hmm. Get that debt paid. And, and strangely of all, the mother of one of these senior guys happened to be in Berlin at that point, um, touring uh, Germany. And in the midst of the Night of the Long Knives, they set out on a car tour of Germany. You know, so unconcerned about what was obviously a sort of, to them, oh, this is just an internecine squabble, it's not important to us. You know? Well, this was a power grab, and if one of the revelations to me in this book was how much infighting there was among the Nazis. Exactly, yeah, that's shocked me too. I mean, I, you know, to Hitler scholars, it's all, you know, it's common knowledge. I, I suppose my book would be quite boring, but to me it was all a revelation. I never knew. Has writing this book changed your vision of the ordinary Germans, the good Germans, and their role in the rise of the Third Reich? Years ago, there was the Goldhagen theory that, that, that an awful lot of lay Germans were participants in what ultimately occurred. And it was very um, controversial at the time uh, because it 
cast Germany in a very bad light. Um, subsequent scholarship has pretty much affirmed that. That is now the common belief that, in fact, um, um, lay Germans were much more complicit in this than, than had previously been thought. And I think from what I read from, from both the primary documents and the histories, I, I have to agree. I mean, especially noteworthy is the extent to which lay Germans sought to use the Gestapo to resolve their own problems mm -hmm. and the extent to which people fell over each other to the term was the translation is to fall in line. It was a deliberate campaign of the Third Reich to bring people into line with the Reich. And one element of that, by the way, was the Hitler salute. And it was a brilliant thing when you think about it because it was a very visible mark of loyalty. And if you did not do the Hitler salute, it was a clear marker that you were not with the program. Hence, people would be with the program because they didn't want to be up, get beaten up, and those who did not do it were beaten up. So there was this whole line of social controls that were put in place to bring to force lay Germans in, into line, but an awful lot were very willing to do so anyway. Don't blame me for falling in love with you. I'm under your spell, but how can I help it? Don't blame me. You spent three and a half years researching this book. Yeah. And, you know, you're a journalist. Um, you're not supposed to get attached. I wonder what that experience was like for you. It was such a dark time to spend all that time in that, in that era. Yeah, well, you know, usually, usually I, as, as, a, as a trained journalist, I used to work for the Wall Street Journal and Time and so forth, there, there were always two of me. I like to think, you know, there was, there was the, the good me, you know, who would recognize how sad an event was, right? And then there's, there's the bad me that sat on this shoulder and would say, God, this is great stuff. <laughs> However, and, and, and that got me through, you know, all my books, I mean, and even Devil in the White City people often ask me, well, you know, so dark, did it ever affect you? Well, no, it never did. But this is a different thing entirely. And I think, I, think, I mean, by the end of the, the, the book, I was dealing with what I would refer to as a low-grade depression. My wife noticed it, my, my kids noticed it, probably my dog noticed it, you know. And, and it was, really, it was really, really starting to wear on me. You know, the, the whole book took, you know, maybe four, four and a half years, and three and a half years of, of research is about right, you know, with a blend of writing thrown in as well. But um, when you spend that kind of time steeped in Nazi pathology, it really gets to you, you know. And, and the thing that kind of put me over the edge toward the end of the book, I decided... A new book had come out, come out. It was Richard Evans's um, The Third Reich at War. Terrific book. Huge. Huge. And I read that book just because I wanted to be up, you know, as up as I, I could be with current scholarship. And it was that book that just it really just did put me over the head. In particular, the, the, the revelation to me that even after the German army, even after Hitler, even after the Reich knew that they were, they were losing the war, as they were retreating from the Soviet Union through the eastern countries, the SS engaged in the systematic deportation of Jews from the towns that they passed through on their way out. The idea being um, Hitler's twisted idea that he wanted to save future generations from having to deal with the Jewish problem. And so it was just this idea that the war is over and they're still deporting, systematically deporting Jews to the death camps just, you know, it's just, wow. It just put me, kind of put me over the edge. Happily, when the book was done, no depression, gone. Well, we all know what happens, right? We all know what happens. We all know but, what happens. But yet the book still reads like a thriller. 
And I wonder, after spending all that time, you have any new perspective on, you know, how could we do it? Why did the U.S. appease the Hitler government? Well, but you see, I, nobody really understands appeasement. One thing I, I will say, though, is that people blithely use the term. But, you know, it was a very, very complicated thing. And once again, going back and looking at the world through this, this point of view, I'm not saying appeasement was the right thing. It certainly was not. But in many ways, it was the only thing. I mean, you, you had Britain on the one hand that had lost a generation of young men and was still dealing with this, this, this pall of, of, of grief and loss. And nobody wanted another war. There were moments when had Britain and France and Poland, which, by the way, was considered by the Third Reich, by the army of the Third Reich, to be um, a pretty dangerous foe in 33-34, if they had stepped up at, at almost any point um, and, and moved against Hitler, they would have, they very likely would have prevailed. But it's pointless to even imagine that because it didn't happen. Another interesting fact, there's so many in your books, obviously, but the State Department and FDR were so hesitant to say in frank terms how they felt about Hitler when a statement like that really would have made a big difference. Uh, Dodd's friend, Assistant Secretary of State Walton Moore, put it another way. You're talking about the... Uh, the uh, he said, you know, we're, we're lynching Negroes here in the U.S. How can we say anything? Well, actually, and, yeah, and that was a very telling moment because there had been um, a senator from Maryland, um, Miller Tidings, mm -hmm. had tried to pass had tried to pass legislation, introduced a bill to force Roosevelt to speak out against, against the Third Reich. And uh, uh, Walter Moore did a little investigation to sort of determine, was that a wise thing? What, did that, you know, what would that achieve and, and why maybe it shouldn't be done? And he concluded, you know, in, in, in a public document, he concluded that, that one reason you don't necessarily want to do that is because we have a lot of skeletons here, in particular in, in Miller Tidings' own state, where lynchings of, of black Americans were fairly commonplace. It was a really interesting document. Right. I used Negroes as the contemporary term, yes, obviously. Yes, point of view, very right. important point exactly. of view. Exactly. A lot of people are wondering, you know, was Dodd up to the job? Uh, FDR really wanted an exemplar of American values. He wanted a Jeffersonian, and, and maybe Dodd thought that he could reason with Hitler. Two responses to that. One is that I think Dodd did exactly what, Roosevelt, what Roosevelt's mandate was for him. When Roosevelt and Dodd met in, in Washington before Dodd set out, Roosevelt told him he wanted him to serve as a, a, as a standing model of American liberal values. Now, Dodd took that perhaps to extremes, you know, bringing his, his beat-up old farm Chevrolet to Berlin to drive around as a way of sort of demonstrating his own frugality to the world and, and also being as a gesture in sympathy with Americans who were, you know, reeling from the Depression. But I would say in the end that um, Dodd has been given short shrift by historians. He was in an untenable position, an absolutely untenable position. A more traditional diplomat probably would have sought to kowtow to Hitler and so forth and would have thrown elaborate parties and had Goebbels and Goering and so forth. Goering, Goebbels, by the way, was, was a much sought-after guest at the parties you threw because in 33-34 because he had a great sense of humor, a vicious sense of humor, but he had a great sense of humor. But I would give Dodd... I would give him a B plus. Mm. I really would. I would give him a B plus. And, and frankly, you know, anybody who at the end of his life is, is hated, hated by the Nazi leadership must have done something right. Mm. And, you know, they mocked him on his deathbed. They mocked him on his deathbed. And I, I think that's not a bad way to go.
You use some of Dodd's diaries as some of your sources, obviously a, a, a wealth of information there, and also Martha's memoir. Yeah. So how did you decide what to trust and what not to trust? I mean, obviously they wanted to show that they'd done a good job. Right, yeah. You know, neither document was, was wholly trustworthy, and you could never use, you know, for example, Dodd's published diary alone, nor could you use Martha's memoir alone. But um, when you triangulate the material in those, in those works with their papers in the Library of Congress, you know, as I mentioned, Martha has like 70 linear feet of, of papers and, and even her baby book, you know, things like that. And Dodd has, has probably twice that at the Library of Congress and probably three times that in terms of official, official correspondence reports and so forth at the National Archives. When you do all that, when you gather all this stuff together, you get a pretty good sense of, of, of what's trustworthy and what's not. One real danger with her memoir, for anybody who was foolish enough to just use it, is because, you know, first of all, it was published in 1939, and she omits entirely a very key character in her life and in the book, Boris Vinogradov, her, her great love, and I don't know if I want to give that away, but... <laughs> Yes, uh, didn't Ambassador Dodd write in his diary every night with his stewed peaches and what? Well, warm he, would, milk? He, he did in fact prefer <laughs> stewed peaches to big parties, and, and he once he once boasted that he could throw an entire diplomatic function with a single bottle of gin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrific question here from the audience. In this century, psychiatry has taught us about the unreliability of eyewitnesses. Do you think this is an obstacle? for today's writers of history have to overcome, or does it make you more open to questioning and aligning alternate points of view? Well, you know, I think, let me, let me address the question this way. I mean, you, have to, you always have to make judgments about what's, what's trustworthy and what's not. Eyewitness reports are often untrustworthy. Eyewitness reports passed down to grandchildren. Subsequent generations are deeply untrustworthy. And the way around that is when you have an eyewitness giving you some kind of a report, you, you triangulate. You try to find corresponding or, or confirming um, reports. Or if you have something that is deeply, deeply contradictory, then you can provide that viewpoint as well. But that's just the way life is. I mean, that's, that's what makes you know, lawsuits go around. Henry O'Shaughnessy, I think it is, said, if you had to do a book report on this like I do, what, would you f what do you feel would be the most important aspect to highlight? I'm not going to help you. <laughs> but I, I, give, I give you points for cunning. I really do. I really do. <laughs> I think he can maybe figure it out from the evening. This question relates to your book, The Devil in the White City, which I loved. If I were to go to Chicago, which places mentioned in your book are ones I should not miss seeing? Okay. <laughs> The, the Blue Crab Lounge, but that has nothing to do with the fair. It just makes great drinks. The, the, um, my favorite, probably my favorite place, I'll tell you about my favorite place. There's lots of places to visit in Chicago. I mean, I mean apart from the, the, the most beautiful and, and compelling thing about Chicago is, is Lake Michigan, which is a character, I think, in the book itself. But um, there is a cemetery uh, to the north end of, uh, of Chicago, Graceland Cemetery. And that, to me, was really the most, um, most powerful single thing. Because I'd, I'd done all this research, I'd gotten into the characters, all their relationships and so forth. And, and, and you know, whenever you do historical re research, especially about something as fundamentally strange as, as, first of all, as the serial killer, and second, I mean, the fair itself, which is such, a, such an amazing thing. You, you, sometimes you feel, 
I felt like, you know, did this stuff really happen this way? And I, I needed little, little bits of like grounding. And so when I went to Graceland Cemetery and way at one end, all these, a lot of the principals in the Devil in the White City are buried, not the killer, but you know, Burnham and so forth and Root. And I just had the most profound sense as I walked through there on one lovely, lovely afternoon of, of all these people just standing around talking over cocktails. They were all there, and they were all there sort of in, in relation to their social hierarchy. You know, the Palmers had their Athenian temple on a mound, and then there was Burnham on his own little island in a, in a pond. You know, dead, of course, but, but, <laughs> but it, was just, it was just a very, it was a very powerful, powerful moment. It just put it all together for me. I asked you earlier if you would talk about the book that you're working on now, and I imagine you get so deeply into something, do you just have to move on? Well, yes, yes. I mean, it, you know, if you, that's why you, you can never ask me too many detailed things um, about, about, for example, Isaac Storm, because, you know, I mean, God, that's, I hate to say it, but that's like 15 years old now or something like that. I mean, I get, I get so tied up, so caught up. I mean, people sometimes refer to it as immersion, research or whatever um, but suffice it to say I get so caught up that there's nothing left for it, for remembering anything else people often ask me you know would I I've been asked to, would I do a forward to one of my own books and it's like no no I mean I'm done I'm done I'm often asked will I do another you know would I would I ever want to do another book about like you know the 1933 World's Fair whatever year it was and it's like no you know I, I over over Maybe Henry O'Shaughnessy could help you out with a book report somewhere. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, along yeah. Along the way. Um, and actually, that answers another question somebody asked that, you know, uh, I found your story about anti-Semitism in the U.S. even more compelling than the better-known situation in Germany. Would you ever write that story? A story about, about American anti-Semitism? Anti well, you know, I, I, I would write the story, um, but the key word there is, the key word there is, is story, you know. What is the story and how do you tell it? Because again, again, I have to emphasize, I'm, I'm in this for the narrative power of history. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do. And by doing that, I'm trying to give us the experience of, these, of, of past events in as rich and powerful a way as I can. If there were a story that met all my criteria that would help me explore anti-Semitism in America in that period, I, I, I most certainly would, and in fact, I, I do have an idea, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. But it's and that, that might be something I will do for a future book, but not this next one. I don't want to be typecast in any one territory. You know, of course, after the Second World War, never again was the vow. Right. And now we're seeing, or hearing reports anyway, of people being just mowed down by the government in Syria. Right. You know, we saw it in Sarajevo, right. we saw it in Sierra Leone. What do you think, you know, when you're doing this kind of research, are we living through the same thing? No, but maybe. You know, it's, it's such a complicated thing. I mean, I, there have always been these awful things. I think we know about them more vividly today because we have, you know, um, almost of the moment um, coverage, both online and otherwise. Um, is, it, is it any worse than it's been? Um, not yet. I mean, if I had to put my money on, on the worst evolving situation right now, I would definitely choose um, the president of Iran and the Iranian question, you know, um, the whole, are they or are they not building a bomb? And it doesn't really matter if they're building a bomb or not. Um, they've essentially 
you know, sworn to exterminate Israel if they get a chance, you know, do we take that seriously and how seriously and what do we do about it? You know, it's, it's so complicated. I'm going to go on a limb here. I'm going to say that I, th I think Roosevelt had it easy compared to Obama, you know, and in, in, in respect to that particular situation. What an amazing book, and I so look forward to the next one. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to the next one, too. But you guys were great. Really terrific. Thank you. Eric Larson there during his book tour for In the Garden of Beasts for the writers on a New England stage series. The series is presented by Portsmouth Music Hall and New Hampshire Public Radio in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Bookstore. Executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio president is Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer for today is Taylor Quimby. Associate producer and communications director for the series is Margaret Talcott. Associate producer is Tom Holbrook of River Run Bookstore. The live sound and recording engineer is Mike Marchand. Musical director and band is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. To hear other authors from the series, visit nhpr.org and click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio.